I'm going to open with, uh, with a statement that I think probably is the most noble concept ever conceived. Redemption in a world of sin is, I believe, the most noble thought that ever came into God's mind or, for that matter, anyone. You've heard the expression before, to err is human, to forgive divine. It's really a two or three centuries old. It came from, I had to look it up, to be honest with you, Alexander Pope, who was an English poet in the middle of the 18th century, and he had um, drafted a, a poem on forgiveness. And in the poem, he has the line in, in English, to err is human, to forgive divine. Redemption in a world of sin is just unbelievable. And I can't imagine a more fitting description for the good news of Christ. That's exactly what the gospel is. Redemption in a world of sin. Paul, the apostle, would clearly identify with that repeatedly throughout all 13 of his epistles and clearly in the letter to the Colossians. And that's what we've been on the last two weeks. We're going to talk about Colossians 1, 24 through 29 today. And then for the next couple of weeks, I believe next week uh, Chuck is preaching, but the two after that, I'm, I'm going to be wrapping up Colossians. So I encourage you to read through the epistle. It takes all of, you know, maybe 10 minutes reading uh, uh, out loud and five or six reading to yourself. Very important letter, Colossians. Now, there was a heresy in Colossians. That's the reason Paul's writing. Every letter that we have in the Holy Scripture, every book of the Bible was written for a reason. Just like if you draft a letter, you're going to draft a letter for a reason. It's not going to be for no reason at all. It may be just because, you know, I miss Debbie. I want to write to her and say hi, or a brother or sister in Christ, or a friend, or whomever. Everyone has a reason for writing. Paul's reason... His purpose for writing Colossians is to correct some very uh, dastardly false teaching. He wants to correct what has been known as a heresy. And a heresy is anything that will take the good news of God and twist it to such a degree that it's no longer relevant, that God would say, I have nothing to do with that. And therefore, if the good news of Christ is tainted, then there's no good news of Christ, and our salvation is in jeopardy. So Paul writes it. This dizzying, I've used that word a lot, but I like it, this this uh, false teaching was a curious mixture of uh, Judaism, some say Babylonian Judaism, Judaism and parts of Christianity and parts of the mystery religions in the Middle Eastern world, uh, some philosophies. Paul says in, in Colossians 2 and verse 8 that it is a philosophy with empty deceit. And there were philosophies there. Uh, some even say there was an incipient form of Gnosticism. The point is that this false teaching completely moved the church at Colossae away from God because the false teaching was built around a dualism that removed God from the material world. And as we've said for the last couple of weeks, when you take God out of this world, this side of eternity, then, of course, you undermine the entire good news. 
There's no incarnation if God is not going to be materialized, John 1.14. You know, God could not become a human, a flesh, you know, and dwell among men full of grace and truth. There was no life of Jesus. Therefore, there was no death of Jesus. Therefore, there was no resurrection of Jesus. And when he take away the incarnation, the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, guess what? There's no gospel. And if there's no gospel, there's no redemption, and we're still in our sins. So that's the heresy. And how does Paul address it? He addresses it in three ways, and all three are to be found in chapter 1, which is why I've spent three weeks in chapter 1 and two weeks in chapters 3 and 4, and I've talked about chapter 2 repeatedly because what chapter 2 contains is the heresy itself. So we've gone three sermons in chapter 1, 1 and 3, and 1 and 4 for a total of five messages on the epistle to, to the Colossians. So how did Paul address it? Well, he did it in three ways. The first way we discussed a couple of weeks ago, and that was reminding the Colossian Christians who they are. I know we think, well, you know, what, what big deal is that? And I don't know how you, you know, go through your daily walk with Christ, I know that whenever I'm tempted in my walk with Christ over the last several decades, whenever I yield to temptation and I sin, um, no matter what the situation is, it's best for me to remind myself who I am. I'm not the guy on the street who doesn't know God. I'm one who came. I was so blessed. I mean, I cannot remember not loving God. I can't remember that. Why? Because when I came from my mother's womb, my father was there and they brought me home as a little infant. Then from that moment on, I was taught all about God. I know that's not the case with some of you. And, and you know, you're a Christian, so by God's mercy and grace, you've come to know the Lord. But I cannot remember not knowing the Lord. And so I remind myself when I am tempted, who are you, wit? Who, you know, come on. You are, and so this is how Paul addressed it in, in Colossians. He said, remember, you are in Christ. By the way, he'll use that phrase, in Christos, he'll use that 172 times in his 13 letters. And he'll use it repeatedly in Colossians. Why? He wants to remind the church who they are. They are in Christ. Then verses 13 and 14, Colossians 1, they are delivered from darkness. They are redeemed and forgiven. That's who they are. Then he says in verses 15 through, through 20, we discussed that last week, and then remember who Christ is. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, the beginning of all creation. In him and through him, all things were created. He is the head of the body of the church. And the last verse in verse 20, Colossians 1, 20, uh, in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's who Christ is. All right, we know who we are. We know who Christ is. And what do you think Paul addresses next? Before he even talks about the heresy in detail, he then reminds them what the gospel is. He uses the word mystery. 
And so I thought, let's, let's read verses 24 through 29. That's the text for today. You can read it with me on the screen or through your Bibles that you have in your hand or any other source that you may have, you know, your smartphone, etc. Paul writes, Now rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I complete what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the divine office which was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery, now he's calling this the word of God, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now made manifest to his saints. <clears throat> to them God chose, to the saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man mature in Christ. For this I toil, striving with all the energy which he mightily inspires within me. What Paul does is he shares the gospel. He tells them, uh, you know, know who you are, know who Christ is, and know what Christ taught. And he uses it in a word that he'll refer to as a mystery. And he says this mystery, this mystery was unknown for ages and generations. Well, when was the mystery revealed? The incarnation. It was revealed when God became flesh, dwelt among us, full of grace and truth, and lived, was crucified for our sins, was uh, buried, and was gloriously resurrected. Now, if I were to ask you right now, if this were a class, I would, and I could even do it now, but I suspect you wouldn't reply, maybe under your masks, right? What, how does Paul define the mystery? What is the mystery? The instructive verse is verse 27. What is the mystery? The mystery, comma, read it for me. Well, that's pretty weak. <laughs> the mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, what I want to remind us to begin with is that this mystery we are the recipients of. Paul says the mystery that is now revealed, from the very beginning it was hidden, but now it's been revealed through Christ. For the last two millennia, it's been revealed. What's the mystery? The mystery is Jesus Christ lives within you. Now, is that mysterious or not? If you didn't know that, if he wasn't living within you, then you would feel like you have to go someplace that's been consecrated for worship. I'll tell you what, let's, let me address this by going back to a text we're all familiar with. Think of John chapter 4. We are the recipients of his mystery. John Four. What happens in John 4? The woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. Jesus is returning, he and his apostles, he's returning from celebrating the Passover in Jerusalem. And instead of going by the eastern coastal cities of Phoenicia, uh, I mean the western cities of Phoenicia there on the Mediterranean coast, or by, by going through the, uh, on the eastern side, through the mountains, Jesus chose the most direct route. No one, no Jews from Galilee chose this route because the route took him right through Samaria. So if you had a map, in the south would be Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. 
and Jesus is in Jerusalem selling the Passover, and instead of going west or going east, he cuts right through. He goes to a well that was presumably dug by Jacob, right, the grandson of Abraham. He goes to the well, and there's a woman drawing water. She's by herself. There's a reason for that. The sermon's not on John 4, but the woman's drawing water. And so Jesus, thirsty, I believe it's the noon hour. Some say it's later in the evening. All depends upon Roman time. Again, this is not a class on John 4. But Jesus is at the well, and he asks, Woman, give me a drink. It was a very natural request. And she's startled. She says, How is it that you, a Jew, are asking me, a woman, of Samaria to give you a drink? Don't you know the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans? And Jesus said, woman, if you knew who it was who was asking you for a drink, you would ask him for living water that you might never thirst again. And so she thinks about it. She says, well, sir, give me some of this living water. And he said, well, go first call your husband. And she said, I, I, I have no husband. He said, I know. You've had five husbands. And the man you're living with now, he's, he's not your husband. Now, she perceives him to be a prophet. And so she asks an age-old question. Where do we worship? You, the Jews, you say we should worship in Jerusalem at the temple. My fathers say right here on Garizim, this mountain. So would you, since you're a prophet, tell me where we worship? And what did Jesus say? He said the He said, woman, the hour is coming when you shall neither worship God in Jerusalem or on this mountain because God is spirit. And those who worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. Goes right over her head. She says, well, when the Messiah comes, he'll explain that to me. And Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. And she drops her jar of water. And she's five kilometers, they say, about you know, from Sukkot, she drops the jar, runs back to her home village, running through the streets, hollering, come see the man who told me all that I've ever done. And then all of these Samaritans from Sukkot come out, and it's a beautiful text as John chapter 4 closes. What I want to remind us all is when Jesus said, woman, the hour is coming and now is, he's making reference to the mystery of Christ in us. By the way, Romans 8 and verse 9, I was going to read it, left my glasses with my wife. Maybe I'll have her read it. Debbie, would you read this for me? (laughs) Even if she could, she wouldn't. She doesn't. Anyway, in that one verse... It uses three phrases. Read it for it, Romans 8 9. It will talk about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Then it will talk about, in the same sentence, the Spirit of God and then the Spirit of Christ. The point that Paul makes, without even thinking about it, is that they are synonymous. Don't ever think that in this trinity, this Father, Son, and Spirit, somehow we're talking about three different gods. We're talking about one God. One God with three different personalities. That's why, that's why Paul could talk about the Spirit of Christ. What's the mystery? The mystery is Christ in you. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And so that's precisely what Christ was talking about to the, to the woman at the well. 
The time will come. The time that he's making reference to, of course, is Pentecost. What he was telling the woman is, the time is just about here and actually now in my presence when God is not only uh, dwelling in Jerusalem in that brick and mortar, stones, consecrated, made with human hands, nor is he only dwelling in the temple on Gerizim, the mountain. He dwells one day in all of us. For 1,000 years, the Jews worshiped God in the temple built by Solomon and later built by, by, um, by, by Herod. And for about 700 years, the Samaritans had worshiped God in, on the mountain, in this rival temple. And in one brief conversation, Jesus forever changed the nature of our worship, just like that. In one brief exchange, and that exchange came to fruition on Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, when Joel's prophecy was fulfilled and the Lord gave his spirit, just poured it out on all flesh. Men and women, everybody poured out his spirit on all flesh. Peter preaches the gospel sermon, part of the mystery, verse 36. He concludes, uh, we're going to, this is important, of all three points, this is where I'll spend the bulk of my time. So Peter concludes, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Upon hearing this, they were cut to the heart, and they asked Peter and the other apostles, what do we do? And Peter replied, you need to repent, redemption. You need to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, and you'll receive the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise, verse 39, is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off. Church, you may not think of it as a mystery, but from the moment Adam and Eve were created and sin entered the world, redemption was a mystery. How can God forgive me? And it unfolds through history to the day when God became flesh and dwelt among us. To the hope of glory. The word hope in the text isn't like we use the word hope. And I know you've heard me say things like that. And it's a sermon within itself. But what Paul is telling the Colossian church is this mystery, the gospel that's in you, that redeems you, it redeems you for a reason. And the reason is glory. And so from the moment we receive Christ, the moment we receive this mystery, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, from that point on until we take our last breath, We are hoping for glory, but not hoping in the way that we would use it in the English language. And I don't know in Castellana, I I, I, I don't know in in Espanol if it has the same meaning. But in English, the word hope is "Eh, maybe, maybe not. But in the Greek text, it is not the same. So what Paul says is this mystery, which is Christ in you, is the, catch this, the certainty of glory. If you ever have doubted your salvation, it's only because I believe that we've at times in our past been taught wrongly. 
If you are in Christ, you have to be saved. You can't be not saved and in Christ. The two are mutually exclusive. And Paul and really all of the New Testament writers talk about it repeatedly. Okay, so the first point is with this mystery, we are recipients. The second point, we are the communicators of the mystery. That's what Paul says. Him we proclaim. Him we proclaim. You say, well, I'm not really an evangelist. And you know, frankly, I've never been a good evangelist either, as the world defines evangelism. I think there are others who are truly called for that. I've been more of a, of a pastoral leader, if you will, of a preacher, of one who wants to share the word. My whole time in the military, I spent a lot of time evangelizing, but it was always hard. I had to kind of push myself to go out and do it. Once I started doing it, I loved it for the day, you know, visiting the troops at midnight on the flight line. That was a hoot. A lot of moments for exchange there. And so, you know, we're, we're, we are all evangelists to a degree. But Paul says, him, we, not talking about Paul and Silas. And Tim, he's talking about the church at Colossae. Him, we, proclaim. I read a story just recently of an old woman. I say that. <laughs> she's younger than I am. <laughs> uh, maybe there's a point there, too. She's, she's 70 years old, so we're about the same age. I read about the, a story about a, an uneducated, blind woman at age 70 living in Nigeria, Africa. Now, the language in Nigeria, from all that I've read, is only, only two nations there that where, language, where English is the common language. But it is in Nigeria. And there, I'm sure there are other dialects, so I've never been in Nigeria. Maybe some of you have. Anyway, this woman was a Nigerian. And she had just received Christ. There was a missionary who came through, shared the gospel. She goes to him. She becomes a Christian. I mean, all of receives Christ, is buried with the baptism, rises to walk a new life. She's really blind, older, and uneducated, but she is on fire for the Lord. And so she thinks, I don't know how I can do anything. What I can do, I want to share this message. And she also spoke French which was a second language there, but normally you went through a preparatory school to learn French. But she happened to grow up speaking both French and English. And so she goes to the missionary with her French Bible, and she asks him to underline John 3.16 in red, red ink. And he does, and he's wondering why. why? <laughs> you're, you're blind. Oh, un underline John 3.16 in red ink for me. And he does. Then she goes to her local village where there was a preparatory school for boys as they were preparing, if they passed, to go to the university. So they were, you know, kind of the ages of many of the young men I played ping pong with on Monday nights. They were 14, 15, 16 years of age in this prep school. And at the end of the school day, she would sit on a park bench outside the school with her Bible, her French Bible. <laughs> and as the boys walked by, she would stop them. And she would say, excuse me. And she was speaking English. She would say, excuse me, can, do, do, do you speak French? And of course, they were all proud they were taking French. You know, they spoke French a whole lot better than I share Spanish, right? The, yes, and they were proud of that fact. And then she would ask in English, would you mind sitting and, and reading a, a verse for me. It's underlined in red 
And she had it marked. She opened it up and they read it. And then she would always ask, do you understand it? And they said, no. And she would tell them. The end of the story, after the first year, many of them became Christians. But what really caught my attention was that 24 of them decided not to go to the university, but go into preaching. 24. Unbelievable. She understood, maybe without even reading Colossians 1, she understood that she is the recipient of the mystery and she is therefore the communicator of the mystery. And we communicate through how we live and the words we use. Not only words, you know, uh, 1 John 3.18, love not just in words or speech, but in deeds and in truth. So we communicate. But I encourage you, 70 years old, uneducated and blind, and led who knows how many to Christ. Did she do it on her own? No. That's the glory of it all. Why? Because we are not only, the mystery does not only live within us, Christ in us. We are not only communicators of the mystery, we are empowered by the mystery. And it's still mysterious to me. I cannot explain it. The worst question in the world to ask me is, can you explain the Holy Spirit? I can't. I can read you the text, and I can tell you times in my life when I've experienced things that it simply wasn't natural. It wasn't flesh. And all the time, the Spirit of God works within us. And the more we listen to that, the voice, I think the more we'll be able to discern his voice. And so Paul explains, verse 29, for this, for what, Paul? Well, the fact that Christ is in me and I communicate the mystery, for this I toil. That's why I'm writing Colossae. I toil. Striving. You think this is true? Striving with all the energy. Now notice how he closes. Which he mightily inspires within me. We can applaud that Christian sister of ours in Nigeria, and I think, you know, I'd love to give her a hug and say thank you. But in fact, she would deflect it, and she should. The real power is the mystery itself. It is Jesus Christ who gave her the thought, the courage, the path, the direction, how to do it, where to sit, he led her all the way. In fact, she was doing nothing more than I do, I'm doing right now. Just the messenger. And you're the recipients of the mystery. You communicate the mystery. And you are empowered by the mystery. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12, where he'll say, talk about his thorn in the flesh, verses 7 through 9. He'll say, I asked the Lord, I'm going to paraphrase, I asked the Lord three times to remove my thorn. We always want to focus on what the thorn was. Who cares what the thorn was? 
I mean, if, if God had wanted to know Paul's thorn, he would have put it in the text. Paul said, I prayed three times. You ever prayed to God more than once or twice to help you with something? Or like maybe a thousand? Three times, Paul said, I prayed for this thorn to be removed. And no doubt Paul gave him all sorts of good reasons. And every time God said no. And finally, Paul said, he spoke. And he told me, Paul, my grace is sufficient. Where does grace come from? Christ. Where, where is Christ? Within us. God is saying, you've already got me. You don't need to be strong. In fact, Paul concludes, hmm, when I am weak and I no longer rely on myself, then I am strong. It's a paradox to the world, but not to those of us in Christ. When I completely give up, I'm empowered by the Spirit. And it's true in everything. It's true in your married life. It's true in your parental life. It's true in your family and your friends and your relationships outside. It's true with the, how you reflect with the nation, with our nation. It's true in everything we do. The moment we yield and say, I can't do anything else, and all of a sudden the worry and fret and anxiety go away. Why? Because Christ is in us. And when I'm weak, I'm strong. Well, that's the Word of God. Christ is in you, you will communicate him, and he empowers you to do so. And if there's anyone in the sound of my voice as a simple messenger who would like to respond to this mystery, to God, this is the perfect time as we stand and sing.